Don't you, weren't you blessed by that song? I love that song. I've known that for many, many years, and sometimes I just listen to that for God to speak to my heart. So glad you're here today. Hope you brought a Bible. Uh, if you didn't, uh, I think the verses will be up for you, but I like for you to mark things down uh, in the Word of God. And it may uh, help you too if you would jot some things down. We'll cover a lot of verses today. But turn to 1 John this morning, chapter 4, and then we'll look at another scripture there, and then we will cover a lot of material after that, 1 John chapter 4. I want to talk to you this morning again, as I did last week, on restoring your motivation. On April the 3rd, 2003, I went over to Atlanta with a number of men and their sons from our church to see the Atlanta Hawks play the Washington Wizards. Now, when I lived in the D.C. area, they were called the the Washington Bullets. And I got to thinking about that. Why did they change their name? And then I thought, well, it must have been political correctness or something. So they changed them to the Wizards. And uh, it, was a, it was a packed house. It, it was sold out. But they weren't sold out to see the teams play. They were there to see one person. Uh, in, uh, actually, there were seven games left in his career. In 13 days, less than two weeks, he would retire. Uh, he was 40 years old. His name was Michael Jordan. Uh, I saw him play one of his last games with uh, some of you guys may have been there with us at that particular game. Uh, he was on the last legs of his career. He had averaged the lowest uh, points per game that he did in his entire career, 40 points per game. I'm sorry, 20 points per game. That was the lowest that he had ever averaged, which is pretty good. But he was 40, and things slow down then. You get tired, and you don't have uh, the ability to do some things that you used to could do. But in that game, he played... Uh, I looked it up uh, the other night to make sure. I think it was 37 minutes. And so he, he played more than anybody on the entire team. He played more minutes than anybody on his entire team. And he played that way the whole, the whole year. So he was still playing a lot. And he played kind of an average game. I kept waiting for him to do his thing. And he played just an average game, first quarter, second quarter, third quarter. The Bullets were actually, the Wizards were actually in competition to uh, be in the playoffs. So it was a big game for them. And they they were behind like 12 points or something going into the fourth quarter. In the fourth quarter, it was something that I'll never forget. And what happened is is Michael Jordan took over the game. It, It was just phenomenal. Uh, he what what happened? I didn't know this, but one of the he was shooting a free throw, and one of the players from the Atlanta Hawks came up to him and said, uh, uh, "Michael, you're not the player you used to be," and that's what some uh, athletes do. Sadly, some of them in college even do it in the professional ranks, and you see this in high school too. I think it's really cheap, but they they prod one another to try to uh, to get an upper hand. And he came up to him and said, you're not the player you used to be. And um, Michael reacted as I read the story. And he took over the fourth quarter. He scored ten straight points. I remember this. I remember sitting there with my boys. And I thought, you guys need to watch this. Not only is this the greatest basketball player I've ever seen play, and probably one of the greatest three that's ever played, if not the greatest basketball player. This this is unbelievable. He scored 10 straight points, and he scored 12 total in the fourth quarter. He tied the game. He did on his own initiative. He took over that game for their team. And then deep in the corner, he took a three-point shot. I still remember from where we were sitting, and, and this was seventeen year, over 17 years ago. And he, he shot the three, and he missed it. And so the Hawks got the ball with six-tenths of a second on the clock. You know how they do that with tenths. And uh, a guy took the inbounds pass. You don't have much time. You just threw it up. As soon as it hits your fingertips, you throw it up. You really don't have time to make a shot at all. And he made it. 
he, he made the shot. And uh, so the Hawks won that night. But it was an unbelievable thing for me to see, to see this man who, who was physically tired and perhaps below what he used to could do. But something within him, his competitive fires began to burn in that fourth quarter when he saw that we're down, we're in the playoffs, and somebody said, you're not the person that you can be. Now, I'll tell you that story because I want to ask you a question. Can you remember a time, not when somebody came up and said, you're not the man you used to be, but can you remember a time when you were motivated to go the second mile at work for whatever reason maybe just uh, you were thinking in the car driving home one day man i'm not i'm not producing the way i used to produce can you remember a time when you were motivated to to be a better father a better husband there've been many times like that in my life where i'll be reading something or, or the spirit of god will speak to me and he'll put his finger on something in my life and say you 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 need to change this and you've been compromising in this area. You're not doing this as consistently as you used to do it. And I've got to step this up. And then how about your ministry? I think this would be true with all of us. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were motivated to, boy, I'm not doing this as well as I used to do it. All of us at times, we need to have our motivation restored. And I want to talk to you about that because we are in a, a short series of messages on, on reigniting the fires of evangelism, specifically in our church. Now, there are some fundamental areas, and this is what we're considering, uh, three fundamental areas. And I'm just going to take the second one, just speak directly, real briefly to the first one. That if you're going to reignite the fires of evangelism, it's got to happen in your life because you don't have it church-wide. It happens individually. Uh, If you're going to light a fire, each stick has to contribute to the fire. You don't have a corporate fire. You have individual uh, peace branches that catch on fire. Number one, you must clarify the mission. And that deals with what we're supposed to do. You need to know what are we supposed to do as a church. Now, I mentioned this uh, two weeks ago, I think, or three weeks ago, that success is related to design, always. Success is related to design. Um, You say, well, how do do I know if I'm a good husband? What are you supposed to do? What does the Bible say your design is? If you do that, you're a good husband. How do I know I'm a good mom? This morning as I was getting dressed, I saw a little... Uh, small plaque there type thing on, on Paula's dresser that said her children rise up and they call her blessed. And I thought that's important to her. She wants to be a good mother and she wants her kids to know it. How do you know that you're a good mom? When you fulfill your design, that means you need to know your purpose. You can't just stab at it and hope you do well. Uh, many years ago, uh, about over 100 years ago, there was an architect that came up with a little mantra that is still true today. I think that some of the modern uh, architecture and art has, doesn't necessarily follow it, but, but I like it, really. And here's what he said, that form follows function. And it's really true in organizations, too. Form follows function. You don't build the building first. And then put the office in it. You say, what is the purpose of this business? What is the purpose of this office? What are you folks doing here? And, and this is the function. And then you build the form. You build the building around that. You, you build the structure, the infrastructure around the purpose. Success follows design. And so we must ask ourselves in terms of the local church, what is the purpose of the church? And you must be crystal clear on that. And the function of, of every local church, and they may express it differently, that's okay, is to, is to produce disciples, to make disciples. And the front end of that is getting the gospel to people. 
And we have expressed this in, in a little phrase, and you've memorized it, most of you, and probably in your little bulletin you were given this morning, that the mission of Friendship Baptist Church is to honor God by seeing lives change, and that, that's the, the evidence of it. And here are the methods by bringing people to Jesus Christ and discipling them. And notice that, that the piece, the first piece that's in there to getting people lives changed is bringing them to Jesus. And then you, you disciple them so that they can grow and they can develop. And that impacts every area of their life. But it's not just self-contained. You do that so that they can do that for other people. And there's a chain that's given to us in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So this is the what question. This is clarifying the mission. I read about uh, a little bit about lasers and how that how powerful they are. I read that a diamond is the most uh, most powerful, most strong um, mineral on the earth. And there's nothing more strong than a diamond. But a laser can cut through a diamond. And the secret, basically cutting through all of the academia, the secret of a laser is its focus. They take all of this focused energy, all of this focused light, if you will, and it's incredibly focused, and because of its focus, it's able to do something that nothing else can do. That's a very simple statement, a very simple illustration, but that's very true. Once you have a, a, a focus on, a, on an individual thing, you do something that is incredible. That was the secret of the early church. Was their unity, the word unity at the root of it is the word uni, which means one. Unity is always around something, around one thing. And our unity is around the Lord Jesus Christ. It's around His person. We love Him. And that's why we're here today. We love the Lord Jesus. If you're here today and you've never been saved, uh, Jesus loves you. And we bid you come to Him. He can change your life. And he'll give you a home in heaven. He'll give you a quality life now. And he'll, he'll make things better for you. He won't remove all your problems, but he will be with you. And he will help you. I can testify to that. But also at the center of the unity is not just the Lord Jesus, the person, but also the purpose. The purpose is to tell other people about him, what he's done for you. But now listen, knowing the mission is not sufficient. I would say that 95% of us, we know the mission. We know what we're supposed to do. We know why we were left here. We must have the motivation to accomplish that mission. We need to know what's at stake. What is at stake? The souls of people are at stake. Your mom and dad, if they're not saved, your brother and sister, your best friends, their souls are at stake. It's not enough. You've got to have motivation for that. All that the Lord Jesus has done for you, the heart of God, how that He sent His Son into a sinful world, and how that Christ died for your sins, and He bore your sins. And He did that for you. That's what's at stake. The reality that we're going to give an account to God one day for how that we have stewarded the gospel. This is at stake. It's a big thing. And so, the clarity of the mission, this is not enough. I remember when I was thinking through these matters uh, several months ago. On, well, how, how do we reignite this? And it's, sometimes we simplify things, and it is simple. We say, well, here's what we do. Yeah, but there's another piece to that. We must clarify the mission. You need to know what you're doing. But secondly, you must restore your motivation. It's not enough to know the what. You need to know the why. And you must get the motivation to do the what. Now here's the question. This is the question. And I want to pick it up because this is where we left last week. How do we become motivated to witness for Jesus on a consistent basis? How do you become motivated maybe to witness for the first time? How do you become motivated to do that rather than delegating that to your church staff or to people that maybe you say, well, I don't have an outgoing personality. Well, everybody's going to do this differently. God, 
You will win people that I will never win. You don't have to be like someone else. That's the beauty of this thing. Okay? Restore the motivation. The secret of our motivation, listen, isn't something that you do. It's not hype. It's not going to a conference and getting fired up and and making a promise and saying, I'm, I'm going to get this accomplished because you cannot will yourself to do this because willpower burns out. Okay, I will do this. I will because it's fleshly. Now, we've all done that in sincerity, but it doesn't last. You see, motivation doesn't come by something you do. Motivation comes by someone that has done something for you. Now, that's a little play on words, but it's not something you do. Motivation comes through someone that has done something for you. And, of course, that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because He loves you. When you realize how much that God loves you, that's what motivates you. Now, now you may be sitting there, you say, now, hold on, Rick. That's too simple. I I believe you, you have to... Maybe have a checklist and you, you put it on your to-do list that I need to witness to someone today. Well, that's okay. But there will be some days you don't do that. And I believe you have to, you have, to have a structure. Okay. But there but there'll be some days you will do that and, and you will be joyless about it. It will be an obligation. What, what's going to keep you at this because you... You have a burden about it because you, you, you're sincere about it. It's not because it's something you have to do. It's because of someone that has done something for you. That's, that's entirely different. I love to serve my wife. Not because I have to. It's because I want to. She's done so much for me. She, she irons my clothes. She, she put my tie out for me. It's not my favorite tie. But I wear it because she asked me to. Sometimes people say, I like that tie. I usually say, well, Paula picked it out. This I can't ever fix this one, so this one always hangs out like this. You ever have any like that, Tim? You do you? Yeah. It's Kippy's fault, isn't it? You just won't. So I, I keep fixing it and tucking it. So if, you, if you're distracted, you say, why, why is he doing that? It's Paula's fault. Now, some of you may be, you say, I didn't notice, but now I do. Well... We're motivated because of someone we love. I love my wife. She's done so much for me. Um, I, I could go on and on. You, you get the gist? Look in your Bible at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. We looked at this verse. I'm going to look at it afresh today. 1 John 4 and verse 19. We love Him. We love him. We love God. We love the Lord Jesus. Look at this. Because He first loved us. You see, your love for Jesus is a response. It's not something you work up. That's the power of music. That's the power of the Word of God. Because when you read the Bible about how much that Jesus loves you, you respond. Your heart responds. That's the power of well-written music. The most important thing about a song are the lyrics. Now, I'm a musician, and I love chords. I love harmony. I love melody. I love all, I like rhythm. I like all that stuff. But if you don't have good lyrics, if the song doesn't have good doctrine, it's not a good song. And here's why. Not, not because in legal terms, it's not a good song to have good doctrine. Because it's not accomplishing its purpose. There are some of you, maybe you've never thought about this. Boy, I love that song. The song Brother Tim sang. Because it speaks to me. It's a beautiful song. See? Some of you like songs. It's not wrong to like them because they're beautiful. But because it speaks to your soul, it speaks to your mind, and it speaks to your emotions. That's what doctrine does. And here it is. Look, we love Him. We love Christ because He first loved us. My love for God is a response to Him because I think about how much He loved me. 
So if I'm not thinking about Him, I'm not thinking about how much He loved me, I'm not going to love Him. So if I write down, I need to love God today. That's not what that verse says. If I, if I say, man, I haven't been walking with God. Walk with God today. That's not going to do it. That's why through the years I've taught you, you need to read your Bible. And it's not you're just reading your Bible. You're looking for, for who God is and what He has done. What He's done for you. And His promises. You look for these things because then God begins to speak to you. And, and your heart is stirred with gratitude. And you see the majesty and the awe of God. And it changes you. It makes a difference. We love Him because He first loved us. Are you getting this? I know you are. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. Look at this. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Constraineth us. Con means to surround, C-O-N. Strain means to push. It means all around me, I'm being pushed, I'm impelled. And here's what the the idea is, I'm motivated from my soul. But but watch this, because when we read this verse, typically, here's what we see it. I'm going to read it wrong. For my love for Christ constrains me. And that's not what it says. It does not say, my love for Jesus constrains me. It says, the love of Christ. His love for me constrains me. Now, my response to that is, I love Him. But it's not, it's not that I get motivated because I'm trying to work up a love for God. Now, I'm talking to you about restoring your motivation so that you can have motivation to serve the Lord, specifically to be involved in the Great Commission. In this way, it will not be a drudgery. You're in 1 John. Look across the page there. Look at chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And look at verse 3. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. You see that? When, when the love of God comes in my life, which comes because I know how much He loves me, then I want, I want to honor Him. I want to walk with Him. I want to obey Him. And it's not a drudgery. And notice the last expression, and His commandments are not grievous. Now what does that mean? It means the, the word there has the idea of being weighty. And it means that they're not heavy. It means they're not a grief to me. Oh, I have to do this. Oh man, I, I've got to go to church. I have to work in the nursery. I have to teach today. I've, I've got to tell this person about Christ. I have to. No, His commandments aren't grievous because He has loved me so much. This is a privilege. It is a responsibility, but, but I see it as a privilege and a responsibility. When you m- remove the privilege from it, it becomes obligatory. And after a while, an obligation... Gets taken off the table because it's grievous. Now, let me give you some practice here, and I, and I want to put some, uh, hang some, some things on here for you that will help you. Let me give you two big ideas here on motivation. Number one, and I've already said this, but stay with me. Motivation comes by considering God's love for you. Considering God's love for you. That's the bottom line. The Bible is filled with scriptures on how much God loves you. And the Bible is filled with appeals to you to do things because He loves you. Did you know that? For example, when Paul speaks to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us to to give ourselves to God. It's not because it's our obligation, though it is. It's on the basis of the love of God. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, you know the verse, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present yourselves a living sacrifice. Now you need to, you need to surrender yourself to God. I mean, the church, the church is important. 
You need to put the church in your schedule. Well, the church is important, but Jesus is important. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of the mercies, because of how merciful, and and it's plural. And the idea is, as you go back through the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 3 are about condemnation, about how we were lost and condemned to hell. And chapters 4 and 5 are about justification, how that He saved us. We were unworthy sinners. Chapters 6 through 8 are about sanctification, about how that He has not only saved us, but He's changing us present tense. And He, he loves us enough to be patient, and He forbears us, and He's changing us grace by grace, faith by faith, just on a daily basis. And when we think about these things, and you get in and you study these things, it motivates you just to say, God, thank you. Nothing I can do would compensate for how much you love me. And also, the love of God leads us to salvation. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, again in Romans, the writer says, Despisest thou the riches, look at this plural, riches of his goodness, the riches of his forbearance. He forbears us ignoring him. How many times have you just said no to God and He could have cut you off? He forbears you and me. The riches of His long suffering, not knowing, look at this, it's the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The word leadeth there means to drive, to induce. The goodness of God drives you to repentance. Now, in Jude, the Bible says, if some have compassion, making a difference. And it says, and of others, you have to pull them out of the fire. But you will win a lot of people by your compassion, which comes from the heart of God. God says, I love you, I died for you. Law, legislation, requirement will not provide lasting motivation. The only thing that will do that is grace. Ever. Ever. It won't work. At some point in your parenting, you've got to switch from requirement to grace. Grace is always in there. But when your children are young, you've got a situation where you have to do this. But as they grow older, you begin to extend mercy and grace. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 23, 26, Solomon said, My son, give me your heart. Malachi 4, 6, he says, for the fathers to turn their hearts to the children, so the children will turn their hearts toward them. Well, they don't do that by the law. Son, you love me because I know know the Bible. No, they're going to love you because you've been good to them. They're going to love you because of of the, here it is, the riches of your long-suffering, of your forbearance. That's why your kids are going to turn your heart. All of this... Is true with, with the dynamics of any relationship. Maybe you know this story. I, I've given it, but it's been a long, long time, and others have given it. The story is told about a lady who was married to a tyrant, and he made these lists out for her. And so he said, I want breakfast. At 6.30 in the morning, and this is what I want to eat. He had it listed out there for her. And I want my clothes ironed this way. And I want the, the house cleaned this way. And I, when I come home from work, I, I want to eat at this time. And he had all these, these lists for her. And because of his harshness, she, she feared to get outside those boundaries. And she lived by, by these lists. And she was fearful of this man. Well, one day he died unexpectedly. A couple of years passed and she met another man that was directly opposite, 180 degrees opposite. He was a kind man. He was a tender man. He was a gentle man. And 
he never gave her a list. He was just good to her. One day while he was at work, she was taking care of some things and she was cleaning some things out and deep in one of the dressers, she, she pulled out some things and, and she found the lists from her first husband. And it brought back some bad memories and she began to read those lists in his own handwriting that he had made for her. And tears began to roll down her cheeks and then she realized that Everything on this list that he wrote for me, I'm doing for my new husband, but I love to do it. Because he doesn't require it, because he loves me. You see, love will motivate like like law cannot. And God gives us the law so it will drive us to himself. But when when it drives us to himself... It's there so that He can love us, He can care for us. What is one of the indications that our work is void of love? You know, the Bible, I showed you a scripture last week where it talks about several times in the New Testament, the labor of love. And how that's important to God, that we have a labor of love. And boy, it's absent of that sometimes, isn't it? Because we have to, we have to, I have a... Um, I, I don't do a lot on Sunday afternoons because I'm I'm so tired and and uh, I take a long nap. But a man that had a, a great influence in my life, he and his wife are having a 60th anniversary this afternoon. I told Paula, I said, uh, "Oh, I have to go to that anniversary tomorrow for them." And immediately I corrected myself. I wasn't thinking about this sermon. I, I try to live this way. I try to. I said, oh, "No, no, I don't have to. I get to go to that." And that's all I said. I wasn't trying to be self-righteous. I, I want to live this way. I get to go to church. I get to preach. I get to tithe. I get to give. I get to do these things. David Livingston, the missionary to Africa, said this. He said, people talk of the sacrifices that I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. He said, I never made a sacrifice. Of this, speaking of making sacrifices, we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Isn't that true? But as we become aware of how much Jesus gave for us, we're not going to become aware of this. We're going to be complainers. Oh, I have to do this. No, I get to do this. It's a privilege. Sometimes I wonder when I preach and here and other places, and sometimes I write things in my blog about how that, about my parents, about my mom and dad. And I'm fully aware that some people had a difficult relationship with their parents, and I. I'm not trying to rub their nose in it. I'm really not. I I know about that. And I'm sensitive to that. But I know that you folks must get tired of that. But I love my parents. I love my parents. And I want you to know something. The older I get, the more I love them. The older I get, the, the more I realize... Um, how much they how much they gave for me, how much they laid down for me that I didn't know when I was younger. And because it sits on my heart, it sits in my mind. And when I talk, sometimes it's out of the overflow. It's not in my notes, or even when I'm typing, it just comes out. Because I don't have to. Oh, this would sound good in there. No, I get to. I was thinking the other day about where my mom sat back there where Calvin is this morning. And how I so miss her after church just getting to take her out to eat and buy her lunch. 
And you know, when she was here, it was never a burden. It was never a burden. She would always say, thank you for buying my lunch. During the week, I'd pick her up. Thank you for buying my lunch. That was never a burden. She birthed me. She laid her life down for me in so many ways. She put off buying stuff for herself so I could have clothes. The stuff my daddy did for me. I remember when my dad's body was there and Hoss and I were in the room. And we didn't talk about his salary. We said he, he took care of us. He bought us shoes and cleats and paid our fees when he didn't have money. He took time with us. That's what came to our minds. It was the giving. It was the stuff. I remember when my mom passed. And forgive me, I may mention this. When she was there, I just said, the first thing I said, and it just came out of my heart. I said, a lot of history, a lot of history is gone. What do I mean by that? There's no more stories. There's no more, Mom, what about this? Those of you that are younger, are you listening? If you have your parents, are you listening? You need to ask questions. Oh, listen, how how much more should we love the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us? And think of these things. Consider, in this matter, considering the love of God, consider how rich He was and how poor He became and how poor you were and how rich He made you. That's a long sentence. But He was so rich, but He became so poor so that you who were spiritually poor, a spiritual pauper, could become spiritually rich. It's given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when it talks about the grace of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That through his poverty, ye through his poverty might be rich. He became poor for me. In spite of his position, in spite of his status, in spite of his wealth, he came down from heaven to a sin-cursed planet. To put up with people that would abuse him and curse him and not appreciate him. So that I could be rich. He who was eternal was confined to time. He who was omnipresent was confined to space. He who was spirit was confined to a body. That he might be a sacrifice for our sins. These are, these are lofty thoughts. Not because I've thought of them. Because I've, I think of them a lot. But they draw my heart to the heart of God. And they help my heart stay tender for him. What humility. What grace. This is, this is the Lord Jesus. And frankly, God the Father is humble. The Holy Spirit is humble. He lives in us. What humility to live in this garbage time. He who was a king was born in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. The king of the universe. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, which is just strips of, of cloth wrapped around a newborn baby is what they used it for. And she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. No room for... The master, no room for the king. And he humbled himself. He had no home. Jesus had no home. He lived on what other people did for him. He didn't pour mouth, but he lived on what other people did for him. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20, And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. When I think about this, I always think about in John chapter 7 and verse 53. The Bible says, And every man went unto his own house. 
And the next chapter is chapter 8 of John in verse 1. Here's what it says. And Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. Everybody went to his house and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now I'm sure he went there to pray, but he went there to sleep. He had no home. He had no money when it came time to pay taxes. Frankly, Peter and the disciples had no money. And Pete said, what are we going to do? Matthew chapter 17 and verse 27. Jesus said, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me. And they go pay the taxes that way. He had no money. But his father provided for him. Jesus lived his entire life in submission to his father. He lived like a man, though he was God. 100% God, 100% man. But he lived in submission to his father. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, because he was God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? The word robbery means to claim for your own. It means to claim the privileges of God for his own. He says, I'm not going to live as God. I'm going to live as a man, though I am God. But he made himself of no reputation. That means he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of the independent exercise of the attributes as God. Though he could have been omnipotent, omnipresent, and he could have had all of the attributes of God. He submitted those and, and, and he lived as a, as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Like you and I are supposed to live in submission to his father. And he took upon him the form of a servant. Still being in the form of God. God being a servant made in the likeness of men. Found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself. Came obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Listen, if you're saved this morning, you're rich, but you're rich spiritually. You may not have a lot of money, but you are spiritually rich. Read the book of Ephesians. But you're spiritually rich because he became poor. Jesus became poor. And by the way, he has a body in heaven today and he always will. Then consider how much you have been forgiven. We forget this. In Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee called a dinner for Jesus. His name was Simon. Jesus came to the meal and a lady came in that was a great sinner. And she was weeping and she began to take her hair with her tears and she began to clean Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee, didn't. it was common courtesy. You clean someone's feet because of the dirt of the city and, and a lot of other things would get on your feet. Dirt and other things that were running in the gutter. And so she began to clean his feet with her hair, which was a, not just a sign of beauty. It was something that was very clean for a woman. And she humbled herself and she began to clean his feet. And then she began to anoint his feet with, with some precious oil that she brought in. And Simon the Pharisee began to criticize. He said, don't you know who's touching you, this, this woman? You're being defiled by this woman. And Jesus said, she, she's cleaning my feet. You didn't do that, but she did. And she's grateful. And then he said something. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 47, look at this. Wherefore I say unto you, her sins which are many are forgiven. Look at this. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. You know what Jesus was saying? She loves me more because she knows her sins were great. Now here's the idea. Here's the idea. Simon, you are just as great a sinner, but you don't see it. And some of you may look at other people and say, well, my sin is not as bad because I grew up in church. And I'm not, no, listen, there are different types of sin. There are sins of the spirit, sins of the flesh. They both, they're both an offense in the name of God. And you must realize how, how much you have been forgiven in the name of Jesus. 
let's say that you're at home and someone, you get a letter, a certified letter, and it's from the hospital, and you say, oh, no. Oh, no, I was in the hospital, and I owe them money. I owe them $150, and I've been trying to pay that off, $25 a month, and they're calling for it. I don't have it. So you open it up, kind of dreading it. And it says, from the hospital. And they say, you, you have been forgiven your debt of $150 to the hospital. We have a policy. And this policy is your debt has been forgiven. You don't owe this anymore. You know what you do? You go and tell you, hey, honey, guess what? We don't owe that money anymore. The hospital has forgiven. By the way, the word forgiven means to bear the burden. Somebody else bore the burden for you. Forgiveness, doesn't, for, forgiveness isn't cheap. It's costly. Somebody else had to bear it. But they took care of it. Now, you would be grateful, but $150, how long would you think about that? A week? A month? You wouldn't think of I don't think you think about it over a month. You'd say, well, okay, let's go on to something else. I'm grateful for that. And every now and then, oh, yeah, that hospital, I appreciate that hospital. But it was $150. Let's say you had a major surgery and there was a, a glitch in your coverage or you didn't have insurance and it was $250,000 and you, you owe that and you get all the breakdowns and you had is there's 12, 15 pages of everything and all the drugs and all the peripheral stuff they use. The bottom line, 250000 bucks, and you owe that from the hospital. And you look at that with your sweetheart, and you say, what in the world are we going to do? And both of you are discouraged. Two weeks go by, and then you realize we can't even make the minimum payment. Even if we did, we're going to be in debt for the rest of our life, just trying to make a minimum. What are we going to do? And then you get a certified letter in the mail and you open it up. It says that an anonymous donor has stepped up and paid your debt of a quarter million dollars for your surgery. You don't owe a penny. Now, I want to ask you a question. How long would you remember that? A week, a month? Oh, no, no. You'd be shouting glory over that for a long time. Because there's a difference between $150 and $250,000. And a lot of us, we think we're $150 sinners when we're $250,000 sinners. Because all of us have sinned before a thrice holy God. And until we realize how much we have been forgiven, we're going to take advantage of that. We're not going to be grateful. Our service is going to be a drudgery. Then consider the price that Jesus paid for your redemption. Consider the price that He paid. He suffered emotionally. People rejected Him. They made fun of Him. They, in John eight forty one, they said of Him, We be not born of fornication. They made fun of his virgin birth as he grew up. They mocked him. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says that he, he sweat drops of blood, if you were, as it were. He suffered physically as he was going to the cross. He was buffeted, the Bible says, and beaten black and blue by the soldiers. They put a crown of thorns on his head. There are more blood vessels in your head than any other place. That's why we sing about the blood of Jesus so much. And, and the pain there and all of the blood that began to pour down upon his face. And they scourged him with that old, it's called the cat of nine tails, made of leather thongs with pieces of Nail and people of iron, pieces of iron. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble with my memory. Pieces of iron and almost like fish hooks. 
when they would wrap it around these professional executors and it would wrap into him and they would pull it back and it would just open his body up. Many men died when they were given that treatment. They were disemboweled. He suffered physically. He suffered spiritually. He was on the cross and he took on our sins and he was separated from his father. He who was holy bore our sins. Consider the price he paid. There was much more I could say about this. One of my favorite songs says this. When I think of how he came so far from glory. Came and dwelled among the lowly such as I. To suffer shame and such disgrace. On Mount Calvary take my place. Then I ask myself this question. Who am I? When I'm reminded of his words I'll leave you never. If you'll believe, I'll give to you life forever. I know there's nothing I could have done to deserve God's only Son to fight my battles until they're won. For who am I? Who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I that he would pray, not my will, thine Lord? The answer I may never know why he ever loved me so. But to an old rugged cross he'd go. For who am I? I was uh, in a camp service one time. And the singer said, uh, was with the young people. said, let's sing something old school. Let's do the old rugged cross. I was offended. Not because it was an old song. Because it's a sacred song. Teaching these young people. It's not old school. It's not old school. It's about Jesus. Teaching them. That's wrong. It's an old rugged cross. The love of Christ. Consider how deep the love of God is. Consider how deep and broad it is. In Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 17 through 19, that Christ, here's His prayer, may dwell in your hearts by faith. Watch this. That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints. Notice that. You may be able to. What is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ as best you can because it passeth knowledge. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Part of that fullness is being filled with, with His love. And when you're filled with His love, it affects the way you serve Him. I heard a story about the great evangelist Gypsy Smith. Gypsy Smith was, uh, got in a cab one day with this other preacher. And uh, they were going to a place in New York City and... The preacher had some questions for him. He said, uh, Mr. Smith, he said, you're always so excited about Jesus. You're always so fresh. He said, how do you do that? I want to be like you. How do you do that? And he said, I never forgot what he told me. He said, son, I've never gotten over the wonder of it all. Oh, may that be true of us. We never get over the wonder of it all. When Peter got out of the ministry and he left because he was discouraged. He felt like he'd let the Lord down and he didn't want to see Jesus anymore. And he said, I'm going fishing. That didn't mean I'm going to catch some fish. That meant I'm, I'm leaving the ministry. I'm a failure. And Jesus sought him out while he was out there fishing. And Jesus talked to him. He said, I want to restore you. And, and notice how he restored his heart. But notice what he went for when he went for his heart. He didn't scold him. He spoke directly to him, but you know what he did? John chapter 21, look at verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, look at this, lovest thou me more than these? Maybe he pointed to the fish. Do you love me more than the fish? Maybe he pointed to the other disciples, because six of them went with him, I think. You said that you won't deny me. Do you, do you love me? Notice what he's going for in his heart. Peter, do you love me? 
And Peter saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He said, I want you to go back in the ministry. And he saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. I want you to go back and, and work in the fields, Pete. Go, go back and, and serve me. And Jesus saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Now look at this. Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Peter said unto him, Feed my sheep. Now here's the thing. Jesus knew that Peter's problem was not a commitment problem. And that's what I've been getting at the whole time. Your, your problem in ministry, your problem in evangelism is not one of commitment. Well, what I, what I got to do is be more committed. No, it's a heart problem. Jesus goes for the heart. He says, you don't love me the way that you used to love me. When the church of Ephesus lost her love for Christ, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Now notice what he says. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. How does he restore them? He says, I want you first of all to remember. Don't commit. Don't, you know, commitment comes down the road. It's, it's an issue of surrender. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember. Go back in the inner chambers of your heart. And stir those emotions again. The second way to restore motivation, I'll just mention this quickly. Motivation comes not only by considering the love of God for you. I gave you some ways to do that quickly. But very quickly, secondly, motivation comes by dealing honestly with your sin. Dealing honestly with your sin. Did you know that that sin... Sin will cool your love for God. If you're here this morning and you've been tolerating sin in your life, it will cool your love for God. Here's what Jesus said in the last days in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You see that? When iniquity abounds in a society or in your heart, the principle is the same. The love of many shall wax cold. The two words wax cold mean this. It means a chilly breeze on an object that causes it to become cold. Unconfessed sin affects your ability to love. You don't love the Lord and you don't love people anymore because God is the one that helps you to put up with the, the idiosyncrasies of people. Even of your family. When I was a teenager, I remember going home and, and I, I was away from the Lord in my heart. And I knew I was. We had eight tracks back then. Some of you don't know. You can look it up on Google later. And I had a, a gospel eight track I, I liked a lot. And I went and I put it in and I went and laid on my bed. I remember I was so heavy. I was just so heavy knowing that, man, God, I'm away from you. I'm not happy. And this song came on. It was the first song. I want to read the words. When discouraged and depressed, God loves you. And remember in the test, God loves you. When it seems all hope is gone, and you feel so all alone, look above, behold the dawn, God loves you. And then here's the last verse. And I, my heart was broken. I began to weep when this came on. Listen. I knew the words, but when they said it, I anticipated it. I said, God, that's where I am. And it, it, it renewed my love for God. I repented. Though you now are far away. This is for some of you. Though you now are far away, God loves you. Don't go on another day. God loves you. Though rebellious you have been, put away your life of sin. He will forgive and take you in. God loves you. And He will. Listen, if we want to reignite the fires of evangelism, we must clarify our mission and we must restore our motivation. 
But restoring motivation does not come by willpower. It comes by focusing on the love of God. We love Him because He first loved us. And secondly, by repenting of known sin, because sin will quench and dampen our love for Jesus. If people can be motivated about sports and much lesser things, then we can be motivated about the kingdom of God and all that Jesus has done for us. Because motivation is a response of my heart to God's grace. That's what it is. Motivation is a response of my heart to God's grace. I want you to bow your heads with me today. Thank you so much for being here, for listening. I want to ask you a question in closing today. What is the state of your heart today? Is your heart cold?